and ask the remaining of you here to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Let's bow in prayer before we begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to open the Word of God this morning. And as we continue our study in this great gospel, we pray, Lord, that you'll bless and teach us and help us in in our lives to walk closer with thee. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to chapter 7 of our study in the gospel, according to Matthew, I would probably be safe in saying that it is really John 3.16 that is probably the most familiar verse in in our Bibles. And it's a wonderful verse. I claim John 3.16 for the basis of my salvation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it is certainly a great verse and a very familiar verse. But I believe the verse that is before us today is probably the most often quoted verse. Judge not that you be not judged. How many times have you heard someone quote that verse to you? Judge not that you be not judged. Most people who quote that verse probably couldn't tell you where in the Bible it's found. They don't know where it comes from, nor do they know its context. Now someone has appropriately said a text taken out of context is a pretext. In other words, a verse taken out of context can be made to mean anything you want it to mean, and it's important for us to understand what Jesus is saying in the context of what he is saying and uh, which he is saying it, and in the context of the explanation that he gives of it. So we won't misuse it. Now remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom that Jesus the Messiah has come to establish on earth, and He's explaining to the Jews what is required to get into that kingdom. And the basic issue is having the righteousness that God provides, a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness that of the religious leaders of Israel. And so back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, it becomes a very important key verse here in this particular sermon, Matthew 5.20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in our study, the last time we met uh, to study Matthew, we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 where it says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The focal point of the followers of Christ is to be be in the kingdom, and, and it's the righteousness that's necessary for the kingdom. It's His righteousness, a righteousness that can only come from God. And so as we come to chapter 7, we see down in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. There's a word of warning. 
you see the overwhelming issue and the instruction that is in this sermon that Jesus gave to the disciples and to even the crowds that gathered was what was necessary to be part of the kingdom, to be a kingdom citizen. And it was the righteousness of God which is greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. So as we come to chapter 7, this is the context that we are, in, are still in. And Jesus follows a pattern in His instruction. He states a principle and then He elaborates upon it and explains it. Again in chapter 6 and verse 1, He said, Take heed or beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father in heaven. That's a warning then he elaborated on it in verse 2. He said, really, basically, don't be like the hypocrites who do things to be honored by men, and that will be their reward. In chapter 6 and verse 5, he said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. In chapter 6 and verse 16, he said, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. And then again, down here in chapter 7 and verse 7, it says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Here we see the importance of seeking from God. And then he follows with an explanation so that we understand it. And so that is what we have here in our text today. In verse 1, we have his warning, his principle, and on down through verse 6, he gives us the explanation. And in verse 6, he gives us the importance of the right kind of judgment in certain contexts. So if you hear someone quote verse 1, or if you quote verse 1, as we often hear it, many times just to quote it, and we hear it hanging out there somewhere in the air, and we don't understand what the context of what Jesus is saying. And that's the danger of quoting this verse as people often do. When you tell them that some behavior is wrong, they misquote the verse and say, Judge not, lest you be judged. I've heard some Christians even say apologetically, Oh, I wouldn't want to judge. And I know what they are often saying, especially in the context of someone's salvation, and we cannot see the heart. We don't know what is really in the heart of a person concerning their salvation, but we can see the fruit or the lack thereof that indicates a person's spiritual condition. And that's not what this verse is talking about. We need to put it in its context. Notice, first of all, the command. Notice, first of all, the command. Jesus says, judge not. And those two words give us the crux of the matter. They constitute a command from God who is the authoritative judge of all the earth. If we don't understand what He means by these two words, we don't understand anything else in the rest of this passage. And yet I suppose that they are the two words that people are most inclined to misunderstand of all things that our Savior has ever spoken. Now the verb that's translated judge is one that basically means to separate or to make a distinction between things. In our day, the word discriminate 
has a negative connotation, and often it needs to be a negative connotation, but it's certainly not wrong to discern the distinctions between one thing and another. In a very basic sense, we discriminate between things every day. We couldn't make sense of life if we didn't. And on the broad area of discriminating between things, that's the basic meaning of the word judge. Now, figuratively, it refers to the act of evaluating something in terms of its rightness or wrongness and then making a judgment call on the basis of that evaluation. And many people insist that this verse is forbidding us to make any judgment, any judgment calls of any kind when it comes to morality. For example, they say that no one has the authority to confront wrong behavior. We're never to consider anything to be a sin. And whenever such a judgment call is made in actual practice, that's when this verse is usually brought into service inappropriately. And I again say if someone is confronted with immoral behavior, they often seek to excuse themselves from the criticism by saying, Judge not, that you be not judged. I often wonder what would happen if those people were to say those words the next time they are pulled over for speeding? What if the traffic police officer came and pulled them over and he rapped on their window and said, Sir, do you realize that the posted speed limit here is 35 miles an hour and you were doing 50? Can you imagine if that person stuck their head out the window and said, Judge not, lest you be judged. I think the officer would appropriately say, if he could contain his composure, Sir, I'm not judging you. That judgment has already been made. It's already been made by someone higher than you or me. And I'm simply charged with the responsibility of making sure that it's enforced. You know, as believers, it's not our duty to create standards for right and wrong. That's already been done by our Father, who is the lawgiver. But it is our duty to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of things on the basis of God's Word. We need to still call sin, sin, when the Bible does. And in that case, we're not judging, but we're simply pointing to the judgment that has already been made by the one who is qualified to make it. The Bible commands us, prove or test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. How are you going to do that if you can't judge? If you can't make that discernment? The Bible says abstain from the appearance of evil. It says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Ephesians 5.11 The Bible says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but the spirits, try the spirits, or prove them, test the spirits, whether they be of God, whether many false prophets are gone out in the world. 1 John 4 and verse 1. Let me ask you, how are we going to do that if we're not to make some judgments? And so clearly then, Jesus' words should not be taken to mean that we're forbidden from judging things on the basis of God's Word and calling sin, sin, and falsehood, falsehood. 
Even in the context of Jesus' words, it shows us here that they can't be made out to mean that we should never evaluate other people's conduct. Look down at verse 6, for example. What's verse 6 says? Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. How could we obey Jesus' command in verse 6 if His command in verse 1 is meant that we should never evaluate people? Otherwise, how are we going to be able to recognize the dogs and the hogs of the world? And then look down at verse 15. Verse 15 says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every fruit tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. How could we obey what Jesus says here if we cannot evaluate people's actions? And so in these words, Jesus tells us to beware of false prophets. This is an authoritative command. And we don't have any right to say that it's any less of a command from Jesus than the command that's given to us in verse 1. And yet, how can we obey what Jesus commands us in these verses if we take verse 1 to mean that we should never make judgment calls about whether or not a self-professing prophet's fruits, that is, his or her works, proves them to be false? If we may not evaluate, if we may not discriminate, how can we ever beware? That will remind you of a serious duty that a local church is to perform. And that's the duty of officially disciplining sin as biblically defined in the lives of its members. Now, thank God I've been very little on the, uh, involved in this kind of a church uh, action. I've seen it done in churches that I've attended, but I've never had to do it as a pastor. I'm thankful for that. That doesn't mean it's not there. And I think, by the way, the reason some people never make the commitment to become a member of a church is because they don't want the possibility of being disciplined. I actually knew some people like that. Their parents had been disciplined out of a church, and so, oh, we're never going to become a member of the church because then you can't discipline us out of the church. We can come and go as we please. And they went. You see, in obedience to Jesus' word over in Matthew 18, the clear and grievous sin in a professing believer's life is to be confronted, but it's to be confronted privately. And if they refuse to turn from it, two others are to be brought in to confront it. And if they will not turn from it at the appeal of these two others, the leaders of the church are to be called in, and the church family as a whole is to confront the sin. And if they will, still will not turn from it as confronted by the church family, then a very serious judgment call is to be made. They must be considered to be outside the grace of God and put out of the church. And all in the hopes that they will come to Christ in repentance and one day be restored to fellowship. 
that's the object of church discipline, is not to punish, but to restore. And this is the process of what we call church discipline. It's a command from our Savior. It's to be a part of what we do in His church here, His local church. I have to tell you in all sadness that many churches today simply refuse to do their duty in this area. And they base their refusal on the words of verse 1, Judge not, that you be not judged. I believe they've misunderstood these words because they've taken them out of context. Now, the duty of church discipline is a sacred command from the Lord of the church. But how can we ever perform that very important duty given to us by our Lord if our Lord meant for us to never judge people in any respect? That is, if we are not allowed to evaluate and to discriminate people's behavior based on God's Word. If such were the case, Jesus would be telling us to do one thing in one passage and making it impossible for us to do it in another passage. The Lord does not do that. The Word of God does not contradict itself. I believe that verse that follows these words teaches us what is being forbidden in this phrase, judge not. Look down at verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now Jesus doesn't speak here of a judgment based on God's standards revealed in His words. He's not talking about judging on the basis of His word. He speaks of a judgment made on the basis of a standard that we've come up with on our own. That is, with what judgment you judge or a measuring being made with the measure you use. You see, clearly the criteria for judgment that's being used here is not something from God. That's what He's forbidding. But it's on something we create. Jesus is speaking of those things in which we develop our own standard of judgment, and then we evaluate someone and discriminate against someone or condemn someone on the basis of the standards that we made, not what God made. A word that comes to mind is the word judgmentalism. Any sensible person knows that there's a difference between exercising good judgment and acting judgmentally. And what Jesus is forbidding in this command is a spirit of judgmentalism. The Bible gives us some very clear examples of what this sinful judgmentalism would look like. Jesus' command means that we are, not to, or we are to judge not in the sense that we are not to show partiality to people based on external things. Jesus told us in another place, and actually in this same chapter, in verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, do you remember what your mother always used to tell you? If you can't say something nice about something, then don't say anything at all, right? I heard it put it this way. If you can't say something nice about someone, then sit next to me so I can hear you better. You know, we're all guilty of this sort of judgmentalism at times. Jesus' command is a call to stop gossiping about one another or slandering one another. We're not to hold someone's faults up to others to review and critique and evaluate one another accordingly. Now, obviously, the command against speaking evil of one another doesn't mean that we must never call evil behavior evil. 
If sin in a, is in our midst and it's confronted in the way that Jesus commands it, as we said there in Matthew 18, and a public declaration of unrepentance is officially determined, then we need to call things as they truly are. This is not the same as speaking evil of someone. We should say no more about it than the, what the facts clearly prove but we should still nevertheless speak the truth about it and we need to speak it in love. But when we speak evil of someone in a judgmental way and we're doing something completely different from that, what we're actually doing in that case is setting up a standard that is different from what God has established. We're not speaking of things as they truly are in God's light, but what we would like them to be understood from the standpoint of our own prejudices. In effect, we're saying that God's judgments are not thorough enough for our taste, and we dare to become judges of the lawgiver. James says, James 5, 9, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth at the door. Now the Apostle Paul, he also appoints, uh, points out another sense in which we are to judge not. It's in the area that we often call or refer to as gray areas. Those things that the Bible doesn't speak clearly of and about which we may have some disagreements about even in our, amongst believers. In Paul's day, one of the issues about what Christians had sincere disagreements about was that of eating meat that was forbidden to the Jews in the Old Testament times. Were these foods now clean to eat in Christ? Some sincere believers felt that it was still wrong. And so from a standpoint of a weaker faith, they were afraid to eat. But others equally sincere believers felt strong and they were confident that uh, they had liberty in Christ. And as a result, they felt freedom to eat anything they wanted to. And so Paul wrote in Romans Chapter 14, verse 1, he said, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let him that which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. And let's be clear about this. Jesus is not forbidding us from exercising legitimate judgment in the sense that we rightly evaluate things on the basis of the judgments of God that He's given already in His Word. We're not commanded to suspend all discernment of things. As someone said, Jesus said, judge not, but He did not say, think not. Instead, what Jesus is forbidding us to do is the act of setting up our own criteria, our own standards by which we judge other people. And then we condemn them on the basis of our criteria rather than of God's. So that's the command. Now, secondly, look at the warning. The warning. Jesus says, judge not. And the reason he gives is in the second part of the verse. That ye be not judged. When we judge one another in the way that Jesus forbids us from judging, we actually put ourselves in danger of being judged ourselves. Now, there are sincere differences in the way this has been interpreted. 
For example, some have taken this to mean that if we judge others on the basis of our own improper standards, well, we place ourselves in the position of being judged by others in the same way. But I believe that that's a perfectly legitimate interpretation because of what it says in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would do that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whenever someone is prejudiced against someone else and they evaluate others unfairly or go around criticizing others, they really don't have any right to complain when it happens to them. Paul said it in Galatians 5 and verse 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 15 says, But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed, beware, that ye be not consumed one of another. But I believe Jesus meant more than just to say, Judge not so that you won't be judged by other people. I believe He surely meant that at least. But I believe He meant much more of that. I think of what Jesus has already said in this sermon. We go back to chapter 5 and verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them at old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And then Jesus warns here, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with the, what measure ye meet it, it shall be measured to you with. Again. Now, clearly this isn't speaking of just receiving the same treatment that other people uh, might dish out, but it's talking about a judgment before God. It's teaching us that we're going to receive from God what we've dished out to others. Now, some have protested about that and say it can't reference the judgment of God. After all, when we place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're delivered from the curse of our sins, and we, as the Bible tells us, shall not come into condemnation. But we've passed from death into life. That's true. I agree with that. That's what the Bible says. We do not need to fear that we will face the ultimate judgment that will be experienced by those who reject the Savior. That's only by God's grace and how we should praise Him for it. But still, the fact is, the Bible does talk about a time of judgment for the believer. It's a judgment for our sin deeds, sinful deeds as believers in the sense of that we experience the displeasure of our Father. And we may suffer the loss of some things, uh, some eternal blessings and rewards that He wishes to give us. Paul writes about building carefully on the foundation of faith in Christ with a life characterized by good works. The foundation is faith in Christ and no other, but still our responsibility is to build wisely and carefully on that foundation. And so he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved, so as by fire. 
1 Corinthians 3 and verse 12 through 15. The fact that we as children of God may be disciplined by our good Father for being judgmental should keep us far away from harboring a judgmental spirit and from condemning others in a sinful way. So there you have a command from our Savior, judge not. And then you have a warning behind the command, judge not that you be not judged. Thirdly, notice the sin. The sin. I'd like to ask you to jump ahead a little bit and we'll see the sin that is the cause of it all. Now at the beginning of verse 5, he calls those who judge others unrighteously, he calls them hypocrites. There it is. That's the context of this passage. He's talking to hypocrites. In the end, that's the reason why we set up standards of judgment of our own creation and then we evaluate another and we criticize another and we condemn another on the basis of those standards and it's because we want to make ourselves look better than we really are and we want to appear to be something that we're not. We're behaving like a hypocrite. Only the Lord Jesus, who knows us so thoroughly, could put the finger on the real problem so clearly. Look at how this hypocrisy has manifested itself. Jesus says in verse 3, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thine brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? It's a ridiculous picture, isn't it? I actually thought about getting me a two by four up here this morning and showing you how, but just you can imagine with your own imagination how ridiculous this picture is. Someone trying to uh, uh, help someone with a speck of sawdust in their eye, but they have a two by four sticking out of their eye. I mean, you can't even get up close to somebody with a two by four sticking out of your eye if you're going to help them get a speck of dust out of their eye. The fact is, whatever fault they are seeking to help their brother with is minor compared to their own ignorance of their greater sin of judgmentalism. That's hypocrisy. And what's more, we really can't even provide the help that we think we can provide. He says in verse 4, Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. The beam is sticking out of our own eye, and it's in the way. Now, we shouldn't misunderstand this or, we sh or take it to mean that we should never help a brother or sister who's struggling with a problem of sin in their lives. We might say, well, I can't judge. I can't help them because I, you know, I might have something problem my own and that just wouldn't be right for me to help them. God doesn't say that we shouldn't help one another. We should. We should encourage one another in the Lord. We should help someone who's struggling with a sin problem in their lives. But we should first present ourselves to God and make sure by His examination that He would reveal, reveal the truth in our own lives. And we need to ask Him to help us see what, where we might have a bigger problem than that person we're trying to help. So we've had this command that we're to obey, judge not, and we've seen the warning that comes behind the command that we're be not judged of ourselves, and then we see the sin that really stands behind the warning, and that's the sin of hypocrisy. And that brings us finally to the cure. The cure. What a wonderful Savior. 
He doesn't leave us hanging as far out, out there as far as to what we should do. He may not tell us what we want to hear. He may not give us a cheap and easy solution to the deep problems of our lives and make them easier to live with, but He does tell us what to do. And he, it gives us help if we'll just do it. He calls sin, sin, and He calls us to get it out of our lives. Notice when Jesus says here, first, He says in verse 5, thy hip, thy, Thou hypocrite, first. That is a matter to be taken of before anything else is done. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye. And I take this in this context to mean that we're to remove ourselves from that obscuring and cumbersome beam of the kind of judgmentalism that springs from hypocrisy. Before we go a step further, we must, it must be taken from us. And then he says, and then, and then. He goes on to say, shalt thou see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. Listen, we cannot help one another so long as we're blinded by our own delusions about ourselves. So long as we look down our noses at others in the body of Christ. And we think we're better than them, we're smarter than them, or we are more valuable than them, or we're more holy than they are. We cannot serve them in the way that we think. Jesus treats the remo removal of a judgmental spirit from our own lives as a higher priority than the work of removing the sin from others. And if we fail to consider it or choose to ignore it, we are behaving as hypocrites. Now in closing, may I suggest that how we must deal with this? First, I believe we need to ask God to reveal the truth in us. We need to ask Him to show us if we are harboring a judgmental spirit toward anyone. Ask. Is that not what He says down in verse 7? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And if you ask God to show you if you, are, you have something in your life that is hindering that other person, God's going to show it to you. We can be sure if we ask, He will show us the truth about our sin in our lives. And when He does, then we must do something about it. We must confess it. Second, I believe we need to ask Him to fill the void in our lives. The hypocrisy and the judgmental spirit must be replaced by something else. We must ask Him to replace those things by granting us His own love for those that we have looked down upon. Sometimes we think, you know, I'm alright. I'm doing good. But so-and-so, man, they really got a problem. Really? Maybe you've got the problem. we love ourselves more than we love our brother, then we'll use our brother's faults and failures and sins to make ourselves look good. Which, of course, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. But if we love them as He loves them, we'll look past their faults and their failings and we'll see them as God sees them. And when that happens, we'll finally be in a position to be His servants to one another. Let's pray.